What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain John Brinkus is truly a human dynamo. On top of being a musician and a triathlete, he's also the creator of Sports Science, one of the best shows on television, as well as the host of the Brink of Midnight podcast. I was really impressed and surprised by the conversation. It was a lot of fun, and it was cool getting to know such a unique individual. What's up, my friend? Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus podcast. Good to meet you as well. This will be an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. You're yeah. amazing. So thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Likewise. So right before we're getting on air here, you mentioned that you're someone who's intentionally gone out to seek your edge, which is a kindred spirit of sorts, but you've actually found it, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is something interesting and a bit unique. What did you mean by that? Well, so I am, as my wife refers to me, I'm Johnny one speed. I'm either on or off. I do everything in my life to the absolute max. I have no sense of moderation. <laughs> and if there were one thing that I really, if, like, if I were to have a genie or a wish that could be fulfilled, I would say, I really wish I could be moderate because I just can't. And because of that lack of moderation, there, there have been tremendous, tremendously good things that have come in my life and things that have been very negative in my life because of that Johnny one speed aspect. You wouldn't say. I would. <laughs> you wouldn't yeah. say. Yeah, no. Generally like the, oh, I'm I'm on 11 all the time. There's nothing but goodness out of that, right? <laughs> that, that always just yields you on a straight line <laughs> to fucking gumdrops and unicorn farts. John, yeah, of course it does. That's right. Yeah. So I have nothing but uh, unicorn farts and gumdrops. Yeah. That's okay. it. All right. Well, that's good. Well, we cleared that story <laughs> right, out well, of the way. All right. There you go. That's a great podcast. All right. Yeah. Nice talking to you and uh, we'll see you later. So, yeah. Um, all right. So give us some examples. What all right, I'll give you, I'll give you a good example. So um, I'll give you this as a really good example. So when I was younger, the, when I was younger, I was always the kid that was the smallest. And I, I, I speak in superlatives because when I say I was the smallest entering high school, I was four foot eight, 86 pounds entering high school. So my 11 year old, were you son, young? What's that? Were you young? I, I was just like, I was a July baby. So I was yeah, like yeah. a year behind. So, okay. Even so, <laughs> like I was still, I was so small, right? but I was really, really fast. I was the fastest kid in my elementary school and, you know, set all the school records in Vienna elementary and like, oh my God, this kid's so fast. But as I grew up, kids started getting faster than me 
And I wasn't long growing. legs, long, le- longer, le- well, just mature boys, <laughs> right? I was fast when everybody wasn't fast. Right. And then when kids became fast, I wasn't that fast. So I developed this very early fascination with, oh my God, I, you know, I grew legitimately. I grew probably eight to 10 inches in a year and I sprouted up to five, five. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, I, I like. I was so small and I was fascinated with why, why are some human beings different than others? And no matter how hard I try and focus my energy, I'm never going to be able to dunk a basketball or win states and track or whatever. Like I recognize those. Okay. I can't do that. And it was a really early good lesson for me because I was realistic, but at the same time, I have this just ridiculous desire to push myself to the ultimate limit. So as I'm weaving my way through my childhood and trying to figure out, okay, what is it I want to do? You know, what is it? What do I want to grow up and be? What do I want to do? I knew I wanted to be in entertainment. So I was always the kid in student government. I was always very present, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that early on is like, okay, I want to be in entertainment, lends itself to it. So I'm going to be in entertainment. So I get into college and when I'm in college, I'm at the university of Virginia. Um, I'm at the university of Virginia and I was a spider. Did you know that? Were, were you really? Yeah. You went to Richmond? Yeah. No. Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> that is crazy. I had uh, what year did you graduate? Uh, 2004. Okay. So I'm significantly older. <laughs> <laughs> I'm significantly older. Um, I love, I love Virginia and I love UVA was great, but there was, there was a bit of an issue that arose in college. And as I was sort of finding my way, I found out I was excellent. I mean, really, really good at drinking. <laughs> I discovered the same thing. Maybe it's a Virginia thing. Maybe the state has something to do with it. I, it might be. You know, when it's funny how nowadays, I mean, I really, I, I mean, I, I'm so fearful for kids these days because. Back when I was growing up, there was like beer and some people smoked weed. Were you guys drinking Beast Light? Be- <laughs> it was nothing but Milwaukee's best. And for those who don't know, it's the Beast. Right? It was the Beast in Virginia. A fellow Beast drinker. Like, I found one on the podcast. No. <laughs> you might be the first that knows how to get those $7.24 packs they were, of you wanted, Beast Light. Do you want to know what's funny? Is when I, when, so I'm, a little bit, I'm a little bit older, it was $6.24 <laughs> for 24 beers, <laughs> which, which is the equivalent of a day's ration yeah. of beer. Yeah. It was just, it was marked in a case. And when, when, what ended up happening is, you know, you're just with your buddies, you're sitting around, and this is the honest to God's truth. I drank beer not because I wanted to become intoxicated, because I loved beer. I just, like it's it. I just loved cold <laughs> beer, and it's yeah. disgusting as Beast was. It wasn't disgusting. It wasn't disgusting then. <laughs> no, it just felt like wow. Especially when it had a little bit of ping pong ball flavor. <laughs> <laughs> tap into it too. That, that was the finishing touch that was the garnish to any good beast light exactly you have beast. i like how you keep saying light i was never light. you're a beast heavy oh, I was guy beast oh heavy, my dude. god beast you're, heavy so the amount Woo. of we just calculate the number of calories i was consuming at the beast same heavy. time right at the same time i'm in the gym i'm that guy in the gym who looks like he had an air hose up his ass like i was giant like i was 
benching and decline benching and in the weight room every day. And I'm just getting to be huge. Mm -hmm. So here's what ends up happening. So I'm just, I'm, I'm nearly 200 pounds. I'm and I'm five, eight and a half, right? I'm almost 200 pounds and all the weight is in my upper body. So I'm doing nothing but decline pressing. I've not yeah. never did a squat a day in my life. Right. Never did a leg extension. I'm just I'm that guy, like drinking at night, waking up, going to the gym, working out, and getting straight A's in college. Fraternity in college. I didn't. So I did not join a okay, fraternity. Okay. And this I was about is, to bust a secret handshake on you. <laughs> we found out <laughs> we were the same fraternity. Exactly. I was not. So I was not in a fraternity. And and I'll tell you that story in a minute. But the so what ended up happening was I woke up. And it was the day after Halloween and I was living with like five guys in a, in a townhouse and I couldn't breathe. And I was like, oh my God, I can't breathe. Because your pecs were too tight, bro. Exactly. <laughs> pecs were too tight. Weighing on but, your lungs. So I, end up get, so I end up going to the hospital. And this is, this is a great, great story. I ended up getting, I, I go to the hospital. My, literally my friends, I'm like, I can't breathe. So what do your friends do when you're panicking that you can't breathe? Punch you in the stomach? I don't know. They're dumb. They're, they're dumb, in college. Right? I don't know. They drop me off at the emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> they literally pull up to the drive-thru, yeah. push me out of the car, and drive away. Yeah. Like, And this is before Uber, before, right? Right. So I'm like, these are awesome friends. They actually <laughs> were awesome friends. But anyway, so I, I go there. And long story short, when the doctor's saying, do you drink? I'm like... Yeah, I drink. He's like, do you do drugs? I'm like, no, 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 no. Never. I've never smoked pot in my life. I've never done anything in my life. I'm like, nope, never, never done that. He's like, how often do you drink? I'm like, he's, he said every day. I said, not on Wednesday. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm not a savage. <laughs> I'm a gentleman. <laughs> so I end up, um, the doctor looks at me and he says, how much are you drinking? I'm like, you know, one case a day, you know, I guess. You know, why is that a lot? And he's like, dude, do you know what you're, con that is insane. I'm like, no, it's not. My buddies are doing it too. Like, no, it's not. I'm just yeah. keeping up. So he just looked me in the eye and he said, look, here's the deal. You are, you, you're, you're heading down a very dark road and you can roll the dice. You can roll the dice and continue to drink and see what happens. But I'm telling you, nothing good is going to happen. Or you can make the decision to stop drinking. And I'm 20. And I literally right there and then decide I'm not going to drink. And I have not had a sip of alcohol wow. since I was 20. And I, in a single day, and it was interesting because the, when, when at UVA, if you had a, you know, a, an alcohol related issue, like going to the hospital where you can't really breathe, the, the, you have to go see a counselor. Mm -hmm. So I go see a counselor and the counselor's like, why do you, why do you drink so much? And I literally said to him, because I can, I've never been in a fight in my life. I've mm -hmm. never driven drunk in my life. I get straight A's. I'm just not seeing the downside from it other yeah. than obviously what just happened to me. So, and he said, well, let's talk about the relationship with you and your mother. And I'm like, whoa, what, whoa, what? whoa. <laughs> like, out of your pay grade, sir. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like out of your pay grade. Stay in your lane. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm like, what does my mom have to do? I, I have a great relationship with my mom. He's like, oh. And I said, look, dude, I, I'm only here because I have to as a school rule. Yeah. I said, look, I'm just not going to drink anymore. And it's all good. He said, I bet you, I bet you start drinking within a month. I said, ooh, is that a dare? I'm like, ooh. I said, I bet I never have a drink in my life. I'm binary. I'm on or I'm off. Dude, I'm off. And I'm fine with that. I'm completely cool with that. 
So I turn it off and I haven't had a drink since. Now, when I turn that off, I'm in college. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And I say, all right, now I need to really get serious and think about the rest of my life. What is it that I want to do? And I'm 20. I'm, I'm a puppy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to go into entertainment. So I switch on binary entertainment. I'm going to be in film, TV. I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out, even though UVA has nothing for me. And I thought about dropping out of college. I said, I'm, I'm going to drop out because I don't know if this university is going to give me what I want. I go to the dean. The dean says, you know what? Before you drop out, keep in mind that there is a, such a thing as independent studies in our in in at UVA. You can make up your own classes and get credit for it. So I end up doing an independent study with Steven Soderbergh, who lived in the area. That's cool. He had just won con with uh, Sex Lies and Videotape. Tracked him down, and I said to him, "How do you make it in entertainment?" And I got credit for this. He said, "Do everything yourself." Learn to shoot, learn to edit, learn to write, learn to direct. Just do it yourself. He said, go find an internship somewhere at a video house. I mean, this is bef- way before nonlinear digital editing. Yeah. He's like, go find an internship at a video house and just make a bunch of stuff, which is exactly what I did. I volunteered my time at, it was called the Darden, Gra- Darden Graduate School of Business Department of Visual Communications. And I was working, they had a camera and editing decks. And I'm like, I'm in, I'll vol- I- I'm going to intern here. Made my own short stuff, wrote a book, wrote a screenplay, got out of college, raised money, made a movie, started a company, got an, an investor to buy us the first avid non-linear digital editing system in the DC area out of the basement of my parents' house. We, we started making CD-ROMs. This is way back in the day. We made a World War II video where Tom Clancy was the host. We developed a specialty in sport TV and science TV and at, in, in Vienna, Virginia. Like I'm all in, all the time, go, 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 focusing on being in entertainment. We ended up, my my business partner, who's also my brother-in-law, he and I just built this little tiny idea for a business into, we had a production company, a post-production company, a graphics company, a music, a music library. We even had a clothing line. We had like, we created this, a legitimate big business that we ended up selling. And we ended up growing it, selling it, and uh, sports science is that property that, that people know me best from. And sports science was one of those all-in properties. I mean, the story after story after story that I can give of, look, I'm either on or I'm off. Wow. And when I'm on, I'm off. <laughs> okay, so a couple morals of the story. One, start your journey with a case of Beast Heavy <laughs> and see where it goes. <laughs> take, it to, take it to the failing point. So everybody buy your case and start drinking heavily for that moment. No, but... I want to get to that point because what you're talking about is like a superpower. Like this on-off thing can also be a super curse, but in some ways it's a superpower that most of us don't have. Most of us, we do waffle around for 99.999% of people. That counselor you went to was right. You know, you say, I'm never drinking again. And then fucking four days later, you're like, woo, I feel good again. You know? And so what is it? What do you attribute that to? Is this just like, a genetics thing? Is this an upraising thing? Is this like a just who you are? I I would attribute it to I think we obviously we're all we're all unique. I do think that we all have this OCD gene in us. I think everybody, and I and I, I mean this, I think everybody is compulsive about something. Like whether or not it's you know, whether it's it's not it biting your nails. 
like people just do that and they, they, they just unknowingly have this habit that's ingrained in them. I feel like my habits, my, my habit is living. Like I'm compulsive about living to the fullest and pushing myself to the max. And I'll give you a, a really good example of, I was never, I was never an endurance athlete ever in my life. I mean, I ran, you know, cross country in high school, which is three miles. What my best friend ran the Marine Corps marathon. And what do buddies say when, when, you know, one guy does something, he's like, Hey, just finished the marathon. What do you say? I'm like, weren't there like 25,000 other people? <laughs> I mean, like, congratulations. I said to him, this is back in 96. I said, well, I'm going to do an Ironman. What's an Ironman? Just sounds harder than a marathon. Right. So the, in the marathon, uh, in the Ironman, I look it up and it's a 2.4 mile open water swim. Small problem. I didn't know how to swim. 112 miles. I have to change your body shape a little bit <laughs> if you're that if you're that over overbuilt upper body type of guy. So I ended up. So this this is the God's honest truth, and this is where you'll where you'll see like how binary I am. When I said I want to do an Ironman, I weighed 198 pounds. I lost 47 pounds. I had to learn how to swim. I didn't own a bike and you have to bike 112 miles and I'd never run more than, you know, a, a 5k. So I'm like, Oh, I'm going to do all that in a day. And I'm going to go to New Zealand by myself to just do it just to outdo my friend like that. I'm just going to do that. So I fly over to New Zealand. I only train and I trained for like eight weeks. So the losing weight process took longer than eight weeks, but I trained for this Ironman for like eight weeks. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in New Zealand. And my friend calls me up and says, you know, listen, I know you're trying to outdo me, but honestly, for your own sake, you should, you should try to swim more than a lap in a pool <laughs> because swimming in the open water, you could actually drown. So I'm like, whatever. But they have a fun swim two days before the race. It's, it's two miles in Lake Taupo in New Zealand. I go swimming and I start swimming in the open water. And I genuinely, when I say I've never been swimming in the open water, I'm like, just not drowning, moving, propelling myself. Right. I'm five, 10 minutes into this as a fun swim. It's like a fun activity. And the thought that goes through my mind is this is going to be the worst <laughs> death story of all time. I'm going to drown and it's going to be man drowns trying to outdo his friend in New Zealand because he didn't know how to swim. So I end up getting out of the water. I go see a, a, an Olympian who was there that was giving a swim clinic. And I just said to him, I got to learn how to swim and fast. He's like, all right, this is how you do it. He shows me how to swim. It's called catch up swimming. Day of the race came. The, the, the day of the race came, I'm in the water with 1,100 people. It's like, like being in a, in a washing machine. Yeah. I end up getting out of the water 100th. I'm top 10% in swimming. Whoa. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, I can actually swim and I'm okay at it. Like I'm, I'm in the top 10% of this field. It's that binary aspect where wow. I'm like, oh my God. Like I, and I'm, I'm by myself in New Zealand. I'm like just for the hell of it. That, that aspect in, like you said, this superhuman sort of like on or off, I think we all do have it. Mm -hmm. It's whether or not you're willing to do it because we're all, we're all physically capable of doing insane stuff. 
We're all mentally capable of doing incredible stuff. We're all spiritually capable, but are you actually willing to do it? That's the question. My answer is, when you say, are you willing to be nice to people? Are you actually willing to help go out of your way to help somebody for no reason, to get nothing in return? I'm the guy that says, yeah, I'm willing to do that because I know that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Mentally, physically, I'm like, I'm willing to push myself because that's who I am. That's that's how I'm wired. Almost like an ethos. It is. Yeah. And you know, the only other person who I've seen who has that kind of extreme level is someone I talk about a lot in the book, which is Bodie Miller. And he was a longtime friend. And I called his skill that he had, I called it mental override. Whereas like when everybody else is waffling about, could you do this? Should you do this or not? He just had this button that says, no, I, I do it. And there was no negotiation with that. It was like a hundred pound pack hill sprint. And you're like, oh man, maybe I can walk out. And he was like, that was not an option. He would die first. He would just die first. Like that was the, that was the way he went. And that, you know, that, which I, is this kind of inborn superpower that I think we all have, because it's just choice. We all have the ability to choose. It's just about whether we acknowledge that, acknowledge how powerful we are, acknowledge that we do have that ability. You know, like one of the dopest stories I heard was at this dinner and it was this, it was a dinner with the, uh, at the maps function. Um, and there were, it was an addict who was addicted to pain pills and he had a lot of conditions, a lot of challenging things, a lot of things he could have used as excuses for why he was taking these pain pills. And he goes, and there's a lot of psychiatrists in the room. He goes, you want me to tell you how the, uh, the best way to, uh, to stop taking pain pills to get over your addiction he said, this is what I did. I put the bottle on the, on the countertop. And I didn't take another fucking pill. And it was just like this mic drop moment. You see all the psychiatrists go, oh, oh, terrible advice. I'm like, no, that's fucking brilliant. Because he just decided that, no, I control this body. I control this hand. I control this mind. I'm not going to take another fucking pill. And we all have that power. I think we do. And I, I spoke to Dr. Drew. And there, there's something that's really interesting is I asked Dr. Drew, why, why was I able to stop drinking? And he, he drilled down and said, the reason being is that you were not doing it to alter your state of mind. That wasn't your goal. Your goal was to have a cold beverage in your hand. And that was the experience to you. And that is true. Although you would become intoxicated, I wasn't craving the intoxication. This is where, this is where I tell everybody, I would be the single worst drug addict of all time. Because if I were to take a drug that made me feel crazy good, I would just say, give me more of that right the second, right now, nonstop. There is no, like, I will, I will not leave until I'm doing that. I would be horrible at, at, like, at somehow taking something that made me feel different because I know myself. And when people say, look, you're 46 years old now, Certainly you can have a beer. I tell everybody, I know I can't. Like I there's a that that's the difference between you and me is that while some people tempt fate, I know that my fate with that is a is not doesn't have a hat. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can be moderate and maybe I can be obsessive about being moderate. But what if I'm wrong? And right. I might be wrong. And I know I'm not willing to take that chance. Yeah, it's. <clears throat> I guess there's that other side of the coin. That extremism could flip to the could flip to the dark side really easily. I mean, because you were similarly that same guy 
who drank a case of beer until you wound up in the hospital. You know, like you have both of those sides. It's just a really interesting thing. But now it seems like knowing that's that's your power and that's your weakness, you can kind of steer your life towards that. And so it's a, a, a moment of self-reflection where you get to say, all right, this is what I'm really good at. Let me steer this towards what I love and kill it. And let me steer away from the things that are going to fucking kill me. And that's what I really pray for every night. I mean, I pray morning, noon, and night, and I pray for the strength to recognize that I can do good in this world. I can also do bad. I mean, I know that that, that is inside all of us. And yeah. I think acknowledging, it, what's interesting is when people, when, when people look at other people's situation, you look at someone who's you know, a, a homeless, addicted to drugs, you know, they've gone crazy, they look at that situation. A lot of people go, oh, that person just made a ton of bad choices and they wound up in that spot. And that a lot of society will say, well, that's just, that's just what happens. I'm like, yeah, that's what happens. But the amount of empathy that I have for those people who have gone down a dark road and have wound up in a place where they don't want to be, I have tremendous amount of empathy because I look at I look at someone who who's caught in a terrible situation and I do say to myself that could have been me. Sure. I mean it could it, it could be anybody. And the recognition I, I did we we did a show as part of our our uh, production company years ago we did a show it was called Crime 360 on A&E and it was all about uh it was like the real life CSI. And we talked to a lot of police detectives and and chiefs and said why you know this cycle of drugs and murder and prostitution and people living on the corner in the street and that it's like this endless cycle literally one one of the captains i spoke to just said you know what one day nobody intends for that to happen but there is a day when they all cross a line that is a point of no return and they don't know what day it actually is it just happens and that's what I, I think about these points of no return in your life. And when you say, well, of course, there's always a chance of redemption. Yes. But there's tipping points nonetheless. There are tipping points. And there are also situations. I, I, I like to, to analogize life with golf. The worse you are at golf, you hit it off the tee, the ball's in the weeds. It's, in the, it's on the wrong hole, you know, hitting an impossible shot. The reason why you're trying to hit that impossible shot that you know even Rory McIlroy or Jordan Spieth would have a difficult time hitting out of is because you suck at golf. So when you try to hit that second shot, you're trying to hit a shot that a pro would have a hard time hitting. So the worse you are at golf, the harder it is to play. Yeah. That's the same thing with life. If you may, if you allow yourself to make bad decisions and wind up in a place where you didn't want to be, it's just like spraying the ball off the tee. Now it takes an extraordinary person to get out of the situation that you're in, and you're probably in it because you're not extraordinary at recognizing things you shouldn't do. So it's like you're the least qualified person to get out. It's hard enough as is, and now you're in a spot where it's hard for anyone to get out. Sure, and certainly you gotta have a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy for that situation, but also see... The silver lining of that is if you do make it out, you know, then you have all of those skills that you've acquired on that long, arduous climb. That resistance training, getting back to the path, will make you a better, stronger person than the person who's kind of stayed in the fairway and had it pretty easy. 
I love that idea of life is resistance training. Yeah. I love, I love that expression that you just used for it. Cause it is beautiful, you know, recognizing it's, it's hard to recognize in a dark moment where this is actually making you stronger and it's going to make you more resilient. Once you get out, the, the challenge is you got to get out yeah. and you know, that's the trick. And I've been very fortunate, you know, with the, the, when you look at some people's situations and you say, look, they don't have a spouse who loves them. They don't have a family that's close with them. They don't have a circle of friends that have, you know, helped lift them up. They just, you know, they just have drifted away that I've been ridiculously fortunate. I have wonderful parents, wonderful family, wonderful set of friends. You know, my wife is my soulmate. My kids are wonderful. Like that, that keeps you in check, right. From going off of the path. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I sit today where I'm, when I say I am grateful and I pray morning, noon, and night, that I use the gifts that have been given to me and that I believe everybody possesses, just using them for as much good as possible. That's one of the strongest motivating forces that there is. Because if you start focusing and saying, how can I do this for me? It can get you there. It can get you a few places. You know, the ego is a motivating force, but it's like that coal burning engine. You know, it's like burning dirty fuel. But if you actually want to dedicate your gifts and your accomplishments and these things to the greater good, that's like an endlessly renewing energy source. You know, that's going to keep you motivated way better than any of this other shit. It really is. And if you look at something like sports science as a property that we created, you know, a really long time ago, my premise in creating sports science was that I'm going to build the ultimate lab, invite the world's greatest athletes in and push them to the limit. Everyone said you're crazy because you're not going to get the best athletes to roll, to come into your lab for free. You have to pay them a fortune. I said, I don't think that greatness demands money. I just don't. Mm. I think that greatness just earns money and it's a byproduct. But if I invite the world's greatest athletes to a location where they can push themselves to the limit and show off what they have and to learn something, I think they're going to take it and they, you don't have to pay. So we had over, we did over 1800 segments of sports science, you know, across Fox and, and uh, ESPN never paid anybody to show up in the lab had, the world's greatest athletes. And my premise was proven correct. Cause I'm like, I don't think, I don't think when, when you say to Drew Brees, you know, come and I want to test your accuracy. I don't think they're like, well, pay me money and I'll show up. They're like <laughs> great athletes. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to step up. Cause a, I know I'm going to rise to the challenge to B. I might learn something and that might make, make me better that day. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar and haven't watched a bunch of the episodes, Tell us some of the cool things you found, some cool stories, some cool insights into the people that you know you got to work with and see. Here's one thing that is interesting is that the best of the best in team sports are not the biggest, strongest, and fastest in their sport. And in fact, being big, strong, and fast, if you look at it on a graph, is a disadvantage in many ways. If you look at, I just did a, a TEDx talk about um, that's going to be released in a couple of weeks. But we look at this idea that being bigger, stronger, and faster is better. Well, if we look at the top five running backs of all time by yards gained, we see Emmett Smith, Walter Payton, Barry Sanders, Curtis Martin, Ladanian Tomlinson, all six feet and below, average weight somewhere around 210. None of them are the fastest in the league. None of them are the fastest on their team. Most of them were not the fastest at their own position on their own team, <laughs> and they're I mean, I'm five foot eight and a half. Walter Payton was like an inch taller than me. 
And here, here Emmett Smith is like a little bit taller than I am. So how do these, how are these men able to rack up so many yards? It's because F equals MA, force is mass times acceleration. The bigger the mass, the bigger the acceleration, the greater the force. So if you're really big and really fast, you experience a tremendous amount of force because there's another Newtonian law that says when two objects collide, both objects experience equal amount of force. So if you're really big and really fast, every time you get hit, you're experiencing a huge amount of force. That's how Bo Jackson got his, like leg ripped out of his socket too big too fast right like <laughs> great for Tecmo Bowl <laughs> great for Tecmo Bowl and also he played it was interesting he played eight years of baseball believe it or not and yeah. a lot of people are like wow he had a short career he is the greatest athlete of all time we did a huge study on it despite his short career in the NFL he played eight years of baseball Jim Brown played 10 years of football he's the only athlete to ever be an all-star in two professional sports crazy stat crazy it's crazy stat so like the idea of, of one thing that I've learned is just because your body type is a certain way, just because you feel like you might be at a disadvantage. When people, I, I, I can't stand the notion when people say, oh, those, you know, that, those men and women that are elite athletes, you just wake up and they roll out of bed and they're great. I'm like that is selling them so short on how hard they actually have to work because everybody at the elite level was that kid from their town who was the all-star who did wake up, roll out of bed, and was better than everybody else in sixth grade or ninth grade or 12th grade. But when you get to the NBA or the NFL or the NHL or any professional league, everybody was that person. Yeah. So you have to work that much harder. And it's so interesting that if you look at any graph in terms of success, whatever career that you're in, people are like, oh, I want to be the what? Tallest what? The richest what? The what? Like whatever metric you want to use, usually the best of whatever it is that you're looking at, to me, happens in the Goldilocks zone. I call it big enough, fast enough, strong enough, but you're not the top of any of those curves. Mm -hmm. And I think that way, if you apply that principle across everything that you look at, you start to, you start to see, oh, you know what? I need to have balance. Yeah. I need to, I need to be, I need to surpass average and approach excellent in a lot of categories, but I don't want to be the best in all of them <laughs> because I can't point to somebody who was the best. Was Michael Jordan the tallest? Was he the fastest? What well, you're like, of course not. He had that right balance of being that perfect athlete, but he's not going to be the biggest, the strongest, or the fastest. I mean, I think LeBron James could be that outlier in that in that argument, but I, I think your point is is super well made. It's actually the second time this has come up recently, and I didn't have time to fact check it, but um, in another podcast I was on, uh, Luke's story was talking about how the top 10 IQs, he's saying, all have bosses. Like, they all work for somebody else. Like, the very smartest people yeah. aren't, are still taking a salary in some way, shape, or form from somebody else because they weren't the entrepreneurs who are more, like you said, more balanced, well-rounded in that you know so-called Goldilocks zone. And it's really interesting to reflect upon that because I think we have so many of these self-limiting ideas like, oh, if I was this, I could do this. If I was that, well, maybe you are that person. Maybe you are that motherfucker. Maybe you are the person right. who is just right and you just got to believe it and you just got to go for it. It's interesting of... You know, I take Lizzie, my wife, as a perfect example. She, I did, so I used to do, so I did, after I did uh, that Ironman in New Zealand, I've, I've subsequently gone on to do a whole bunch of endurance events and I have realized I've hit my limit. 
So I'm binary. On I did five Ironman triathlons. I did Leadville 100 mountain bike race. I did a like 13 mile swim, like from Hermosa to Santa Monica. Pier. Like I did I did a bunch of crazy events. And then I started breaking. You know I would like sneeze and blow out a disc in my back. And I'm like, all right, this is no longer good for me. I need to shift uh, shift to something else. My wife is a great example though of someone that. So here she is. She's a mother of two. She went to Princeton. She went to Harvard. She was she danced uh, in a in a professional company in Boston. She's a yoga instructor. She's was she was just unbelievably aware of her body. She looked at me doing endurance events, and she said, "You know what? I think I want to do that." Now she's five feet tall. You know, a buck, maybe you know, a little over a hundred pounds. Like she's a small human being. And when your wife says, "I want to do endurance events." You, in the back of your mind, you're like, that's cute. I wish you well. I will support you. I hope you enjoy it. Me not realizing, wow, she has such incredible body awareness. She went out, ran her first half marathon in 125. She was third overall for women. She goes out and runs a 10K and sets the course record. She enters, she run, does an Ironman with me. And beats me by over an hour. <laughs> I mean, she's she was she's just she's the kind of person that shows up, and she has this perfect balance. And she had no idea she was never a runner, cyclist, or swimmer. She had it all because she had such such an intellect and body awareness that when she applied it to endurance events, she became that person who was really really good at it. Yeah, that's that's cool to to see what you're actually capable of, you know, when you're not really sure, like, man, maybe I'll try that. And then all of a sudden you're like, damn, I'm good. Just like you with the swimming. And I think that's, that's something that's available for all of us in some way, shape or form. You know, I thought I was musically, I thought I was like a music, musical nightmare, you know, and I thought I could never play. I couldn't carry a tune. I couldn't do anything. And I went out for a musical in college and just fucking did it because I think I had a crush on one of the girls who was in the theater right. named Sally. Sally, if you're listening out there, yes, it's true. I acknowledge that I was mildly obsessed. <clears throat> but and anyways, I actually got like a major part, like a singing role in that. And that was this kind of crazy moment. And I just gave it hell. I had nothing to lose. It was like, it's a fucking musical. Like, what do I have? I just raised hell at the audition and got the part. And it was like this cool kind of recognition, like, oh, and they had to change my song a little bit to fit because I wasn't a great singer, never will be a great <laughs> singer. But I got out there on stage and, you know, did a good job. And it was just this this thing, like, who would have ever thought, you know, I mean, if anybody heard me sing karaoke before that, they'd be like, Aubrey in a fucking musical? Get out of town. You got to be kidding. You know, and it's it's just we're capable of so much more than we think is possible. And that's fucking rad. I love that. The... My wife and I um, started a band called Brink of Midnight, the same mm -hmm. title as our podcast. The way that we started this band is I was very musical when I was little. I played, I played violin in elementary school, and I, was, I, I excelled at it, but I didn't like it. So being binary, I was just like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not playing that. It, but unfortunately, I threw away all instruments until I, was, until I stopped drinking in college. And then I'm like, oh man, I got I want to play guitar. So I went down to Tower Records when Tower Records existed. And I walked in, said to the cashier, who's the best guitarist in, I lived in Northern Virginia. I'm like, who's the best guitarist in Virginia? He said, oh my God, a guy that works here, his name is Louis Denslow. He, he 
you know, stocks shelves in the back, but he's this thrash metal guitarist. I literally, I literally go back to the, the stock room. I'm like, ask for Louie. He comes out. He's like, you know, just black hair. Looks like, you know, typical thrash metal. And I'm like, I just want to learn how to play guitar. You got to teach me. You got to teach me. He ends up teaching me. He's this amazing human being. Teaches me guitar. I learn guitar. I start excelling in that. But then life got in the way and I put it down. So I picked it up 20 years later, just as an outlet. And I start writing music. I teach myself Pro Tools. I start writing music. Lizzie walks by while I'm playing and she starts singing over a song that I was recording. And I'm like, oh my God, you're amazing. You have an amazing voice. You're coming up with this melody that I could never hear. How did you do this? She's like, well, I was classically trained in the Long Beach Opera. We'd been married 10 years. Mm -hmm. She probably told me 50 times. So we put out a Christmas song called Christmas is My Favorite Time of Year just as a total whim. Sirius XM Holly ends up picking it up and it ends up charting at number 30. Like we made a song that we put out to the world. It was well-received. Oh my God, how did that happen? And it only happened because we were just willing to say, what the hell? Yeah. I mean, what do we have to lose? <clears throat> There's also something to be said. You know, Robert Greene in his book, Mastery, talks about the Da Vinci effect. And he kind of makes that point that it wasn't that Da Vinci was so excellent at any one particular thing. It's that he was really good at enough things that he could harness all of those skills and bring that kind of wisdom to explore that topic in a different way. And I think that's some another cool idea for people as well. Like no matter where you've gone, where your journey has wandered, you can take that wisdom and generally apply something of it to whatever your next pursuit is and it will be valuable. You know, these things aren't in bubbles. Maybe there's a few categories like accounting skills or something. But even that, like your knowledge on another and another business in another way, you can bring that in and be more well-rounded, be more balanced and actually catch up even faster to the people who've just focused on that one single thing. It's interesting how people like to look at life as being linear. And one when 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 people have vision and you have vision and you say, I want to go there. I want to, I want to, I'm, I've got my head up, eyes forward. I'm looking at the horizon. Like you almost can't think of a path no matter where you are, whether it's by bike or on foot or by sea, where that path is a straight line. Like it's, you're going to wander way to the left and way to the right and way, and you're going to get storms coming. <laughs> you're going to have obstacles in your way. It's never going to be a straight line. And I love to think of it as it's nonlinear living. You're like going, sometimes you're going backwards and you're going <laughs> sideways, but each of those turns and in, in, that you make, you're learning something of how to continue to go forward. And that idea of don't, don't look at life as being linear. Look at it as pull things from your past. Take, take those mistakes or take, take the, each step that you've made and see how it keeps, keeps you moving forward. How that's supplying you with energy is one that I think is important for people to recognize that it's more nonlinear living than it is just a straight line. Yeah, I mean, we're all headed towards a similar destination. You know, but you look at the greatest rivers on the planet Earth. You look at like the Amazon River. Go fucking pull that up on Google Earth. You know, <laughs> like look at the direction that thing goes. Right. You know, Everywhere. it's going exploring all over, picking up flora and fauna and nourishing life on this random bank and then doubling back and cutting through and crossing borders and going to different territories. Yeah, it ultimately ends up in the ocean, you know, but that is that is the life that 
we end up having. And to think that we have to be this rushing straight line in a hurry to get to some destination, there's no destination. There's just the flow, man. There's just the flow of that river. And just pick up wherever you go, wherever you find yourself. You know, go to the shore, talk to the people, look at the animals, you know, experience that thing, and then get back in and keep flowing. I, I, I love that analogy. I think it's really it's really powerful. You know, it's really powerful. And I think the key is that it's in all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you got some you got some exciting news that you gotta be vague about with the, with this sports science property, yep. which is super dope. Every time I see it on, I'm like, yes. <laughs> um <laughs> But that's it's getting it just seems like it keeps going. It's maybe even getting bigger. Yeah. The so I did sports science once for Fox. We then did it again for ESPN. We we're the the whole team we're incredibly grateful. You know, we did, like I said, probably eighteen hundred segments between the two um networks. We won six Emmys. We just it afforded me all kinds of opportunities that I'm ridiculously grateful for. The three is gonna be coming out in a bigger, better way. We're gonna be making an announcement in a few weeks. Um, and super excited. And it certainly is building upon, like I've been saying this whole podcast, building upon all the lessons that I learned previously and applying it not only to a business model that I think has a larger upside, but also touching more people's lives, even outside of the world of sport. I think that we, I've been, I was very fortunate to be in the right place, the right time to be involved with the right project, the right idea. Um, with sports science. And I think that this next iteration is looking not only at sport, but beyond it of really trying to positively affect as many people as I can. I mean, there's one thing that I want to do, you know, it's be a great husband, be a great father, be a great friend, and also just be a net positive so that when I leave Mm -hmm. this planet, I've left as much positive energy as possible. I think you're on your way, my friend. I think you're on your way. Um, if people want to dive into your podcast too, what's a, what's an episode you think that uh, really stands out to you as a good place to good God, place to start? You know, the we've had so many amazing guests. The podcast is called Brink of Midnight, B R I N K of Midnight. Uh, you can find everything out on brinkofmidnight.com. It's on every platform uh, where podcasts are. I mean, you, you literally can start with the Ray Lewis episode in season one and go to Rob Riggle and Dr. Drew and you know, Damon John and Larry Fitzgerald and keep going on and on. You can start at season two where we had Sage Steele and one of the most stunning podcasts we've had. Um, you know, we just had um, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk on mm-hmm. um, th- this past week. We, we're having luminaries in their field and you're going to be a guest <laughs> on it. So you can always start be, with me. That's going to be a great familiar place to territory. Start. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, it's great. Uh, great dropping in with you like this. I can't thank you enough for having me. I, I think you're doing wonderful things. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. You Likewise. Likewise. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I love meeting all you guys when I see you out in the wild and you come up and tell me what an impact this podcast has made. So keep sharing the love. Keep sharing the mission. I truly appreciate you. And I look forward to talking to you next week.